Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 26, or Episode 16 under the old money, Edmund Ironside. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored this merely for the sake of completeness and ease in the Anglo-Saxon England feed. Also, you will notice a change in the quality of recording in just a moment since the original was recorded over a decade ago, and the world turned just a little bit slower back then. When we left 11th century England, it looked as though Ethelred's final chapter had been read. 
He and the entire English nation had been given a thorough, agonising and comprehensive thrashing by the Danes. So Anathored finally fled to Normandy, and Spain became king, it's almost with a sense of relief, that whatever the humiliation, the years of constant warfare might just be over. But in fact, there was to be another chapter. When Svein died in February 1014, he was at Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. Svein had two sons, Harold the Elder and the Crown Prince, and Knut. Harold succeeded to Svein as the King of Denmark, while the crews of the ships on the Trent immediately swore allegiance to the younger son, Knut. We aren't sure when Knut was born. Estimates vary between 980 and as late as 1000. I'm going to go for one of the recommendations that gives a birth date of 995, which would make Knut 19 when his father died. We can talk more about Knut as the story progresses, but the only direct description we have of him comes from a 13th century saga, which being 200 years later could of course be utter tripe, but for what it's worth, here it is. Knut was exceptionally tall and strong, and the handsomest of men, all except for his nose that was thin, high-set, and looked rather hooked. He had a fair complexion nonetheless, and a fine, thick head of hair. His eyes were better than those of other men, both the handsomer and the keener of their sight. Meanwhile, however, the Witten had taken a different view, and had decided that Ethelred should be given a second chance, apparently on the principle better an English idiot than a competent Dane. Though true enough, Knut would have been a young and unknown quantity at this point. The Ethelred route also gave the Witten another opportunity, which was to have Ethelred back on their own terms. Over the first 10 or 12 podcasts, we've been a bit obsessed with the theme of the unification of England, and now we see the start of another theme that will run and run, the creation of a constitutional monarchy. True enough, it was a very small beginning, and only snippets survive. Essentially, a group of the leading men of the kingdom visited Ethelred in Normandy, and after discussion, Ethelred sent back his son Edmund with a letter. A short paraphrase of this letter, which is the first recorded pact between an English monarch and the people, is preserved in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The passage reads as follows. The king said he would be to them a faithful lord, better each of the things they all hated, and that everything should be forgiven which had been done or said against him. As you can see, it's not much, but it speaks volumes for the fear and distrust of Ethelred's reign. And it is an acceptance by the king that he rules according to rules, and as part of a compact with his people. It's a very small start to a process that will go through Magna Carta and end up to the constitutional monarchy that we know today. Anyway, before the end of April, Ethelred was on the march at the head of an army, showing an unusual amount of decisiveness. You have to ask yourself if the presence of Ethelred's son Edmund, soon to be known as Edmund Ironside, had something to do with this change of heart. They advanced quickly to Lincolnshire and Canute's army. Canute had clearly originally planned to fight, since he had arranged with the men of Lindsay to provide him with horses and supplies. But as Ethelred and Edmund approached, Knut decided that now was not the right time to fight. He withdrew his men and set sail. By so doing, Knut left the men of Lindsay to the mercy of Ethelred. Sadly, there was little of that, and Ethelred took revenge on the Anglo-Danes that had supported the Danish raiders. Knut took his ships down the east coast and landed briefly at Sandwich, 
where he landed just for long enough to mutilate the hostages he'd previously been given, cutting off their hands and ears and slitting their nostrils. Nice one, Knut. He demanded and was given a tribute of £21,000, and when he was paid, he then sailed off for Denmark. Knut may have had to retreat this time, but at least he'd proved his ruthlessness. It still remained to see if he was to prove a successful warrior as well. Over the next year and a bit, Knut used his time well, preparing for the inevitable invasion of England. It seems reasonably clear that his relationship with his brother Harold was good, and that he had his help and support. This was really important to Knut, not only because potentially his brother as King of Denmark could have seen him as a rival, but also because he needed access to the national resources his brother could give him. But Knut's reputation would not have been that strong. He was young, and despite the tribute, had allowed himself to be chased away from England when on the brink of becoming king. And that must have stung. So it was essential that he also got support from his sister's husband. Eric of Hlathir was the most famous warrior of his generation, and had been fighting and raiding throughout the Scandinavian and Baltic world for 30 years in Russia, the Baltic, Sweden, Norway and Denmark. He'd fought with Knut's father Svein, and had been a key factor in the eventual defeat of Olaf Tryggvason as he tried to hold on to the throne of Norway. In 1014, he was probably with Knut, helping him to prepare for the invasion the following year in which he was to play a crucial part. Knut continued to gather allies. He was also joined by Thorkel the Tall from England. You remember that Thorkel and his Jomsburg Vikings had switched from the Danish side to Ethelred's in 1012. In 1014, Ethelred worked a bit more of his old magic and statesmanship by moving against the Jomsburg Viking, killing Thorkel's brother Henning. Thorkel fled England and joined Knut's service with a debt to settle against the English. Meanwhile, we could have expected Ethelred to be preparing England for what he must have realised to be an inevitable forthcoming showdown. But sadly, the effectiveness of England's defence continued to be hampered by infighting and corrosive politics. It's clear from subsequent events that Edmund Ironside and Ethelred's favourite Edric Striona were not on good terms. They were most definitely not mates and would not be seen down the pub together. Furthermore, Edmund's role in the resurgence of Ethelred's fortunes was a direct challenge to Edric's position at court. Edric and Ethelred's avarice was also causing problems. So in 1015, Edric demonstrated the accuracy of his soubriquet, the Grasper, by having two Danish earls from the five boroughs called Seaforth and Morcar murdered. Ethelred proved his complicity by seizing their lands and imprisoning Seaforth's widow, Ordgith. Quite apart from the wisdom of causing yet more internal strife, at a time when unity might really have been more handy, there was clearly some aspect of competition with Edmund. Because Edmund's reaction was one of outright rebellion. He freed Aldgith, married her, and went to the five boroughs and set himself up as the ruler there. There can't be a much clearer demonstration of Ethered's failing as a leader, and indeed of the problems of making lasting agreements with kings. The Witten surely can't have felt that the agreement they'd made the previous year with Ethered was being honoured. So in 1015, the Danish invasion fleet duly arrived, and it anchored in Poole Harbour on the south coast. Canute's army was huge for the time, possibly 10,000 men in 200 ships. While Canute's men were ravaging Dorset, Somerset and Wiltshire, the English were gathering their forces. 
The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that Ethelred lay ill, and so it was Edric and Edmund who were raising the army, as Edmund had now clearly decided that throwing out the Danes was a higher priority than his argument with his father. Edric, as alderman of Mercia, gathered troops from the Midlands and Wessex, while Edmund gathered the forces of the north. Ethelred was to die from illness the following year, and maybe it was feared even then that he would die, because by this stage Edric had clearly decided that his future was not with Edmund. When the English forces united, Edric tried to have Edmund killed, and when that didn't work, he switched sides and went over to Canute, taking 40 ships with him, as well as all the resources of Mercia. This was a devastating blow to the English, and yet again their response to the Danes was marked by confusion and ineffectiveness. The English were unable now to attack the Danes, and were again forced to pay Canute tribute, and provide horses for him to stop him from invading that year, and try to buy themselves some time. This confusion continued to characterise the English effort until the death of Ethelred on the 23rd of April. Early in the year, Striona and the Danes marched north, crossed the Thames and attacked and ravaged the lands of the southwest Midlands, those areas that had traditionally belonged to the Angle tribe known as the Hwissa. It can probably be assumed that its alderman Leofwin was fighting for Edmund, and Canute's objective was to entice Edmund's allies away from him. Edmund, meanwhile, had raised an army in the Danelaw, but that army refused to march until the king, who was lying ill in London, joined them with men from there. This Ethelred duly did, but the suspicion and distrust he suffered from again thwarted his efforts. This time he himself suspected treachery from his own people, and he fled back to London. Edmund did his best to then fight back. He enlisted the help of Eutred, the alderman of Northumbria, and he devastated Edric's land in turn, throughout Mercia. Canute could no doubt have marched north with his full army to attack Edmund, but he saw another opportunity to split Edmund's forces. So he bypassed the English army and he attacked the Danelaw. This had exactly the desired effect. Eutred deserted Edmund, harried north and submitted to Canute. Eutred did not last long. He was ambushed by a Dane called Thurbrand the Hold and killed with 40 of his warriors, very probably with Canute's connivance. Canute needed a man he could trust in the north. After Eutred's death, his brother Edwulf was allowed to succeed to Eutred's traditional position of the Lord of Bamber and Bernicia, i.e. the far north of England. But the alderman of Northumbria, the all-important alderman of Northumbria, was given to Eric Lathir. Eric had been a crucial part of Canute's invasion, and here was his reward. As a quick side story, by the way, the killing of Eutred by Thurbrand started an impressive blood feud. We've not really talked about the tradition of blood feuds, but they were clearly a traditional and resilient part of Saxon and Scandinavian culture. Many of the laws of the English kings from Ina onwards were concerned to find a way to stop them, hence the creation of the Weirguild, which was at least in part a way of encouraging the payment of money rather than murder as a way of exacting vengeance. Anyway, Thurbrand was clearly a powerful lord. The phrase the hold is a Scandinavian term, which tells us that Thurbrand was somewhere between an ordinary thane and an earl. Either way, he was a powerful magnate. So Eutred's son Edred exacted vengeance in the traditional way by murdering Thurbrand. Eldred succeeded to the aldermanship of Bamborough, but in 1038 he was himself then killed by Thurbrand's son Carl. Eldred's vengeance had then to wait until the 1070s, when the series ends as Wolfioff, 
Eldred's grandson, had Carl and most of his sons murdered. The North was therefore effectively secure for Canute, and he could now concentrate on London. Edmund hurried to join his father there, as Canute brought his fleet from Poole to besiege the city. Before he left, Canute heard of the death of Ethelred. In London, Edmund was immediately elected as the new King of the English. But within a few days, a much more representative assembly had gathered in Southampton, composed of abbots, bishops, thanes and aldermen, and they elected Canute as the King of England. Perhaps unsurprisingly, most people clearly saw Canute as the certain winner of the coming conflict. Canute's objectives were now twofold. London had proved the hardest nut to crack for both him and Svein, and was clearly the key to achieving a final victory. And he needed to bring Edmund to battle. Edmund, on the other hand, needed to change people's minds and make them see him as the natural king of England, not Canute, and also as a man capable of defending them. Canute therefore established the siege of London in May. One of the traditional problems with besieging London properly was the bridge, which stopped ships coming to the west side of the old city. So Canute had a canal dug so that he could transport ships on all sides and create an effective blockade. This time, Canute was not going to waste men on futile frontal assaults, and he settled down for a long siege. Meanwhile, Edmund slipped out of the city and managed to make himself master of Wessex, so that throughout the rest of the year he was able to raise armies there. Canute left an army blockading London and came looking for Edmund. He found him at a place called Pencilwood, and now we come to a series of five engagements that were to give Edmund that surely greatest of all soubriquets, Ironside. Certainly, if I was to pick one, that's the one I'd take. David Ironsides, that sounds OK to me. Sadly, of course, these five engagements, though of themselves very impressive, were to have no long-lasting consequences. Now, there are lots of place names coming now, so once again there's a map at the website historyofengland.typepad.com. Pencilwood is spectacularly rich in Anglo-Saxon history. It's the site of a battle between Chenwall and the Britons in 658. It is said to be the gathering place of Alfred before the Battle of Ethandune. And now it was the site of a victory for Edmund against Canute. Here at last was evidence that with the right leadership the Danes could be beaten, something which had been seemingly impossible for 30 years. Canute retreated north to Sherston where Edmund again caught up with him and battle was joined once again. The Battle of Sherston lasted for two days and only ended when both armies were exhausted. Knut slipped away and rejoined the rest of his army at London to continue the siege. Edmund followed and swung his army north of the Thames. This allowed him to attack the Danish camp from an unexpected direction, namely from Tottenham, from the area now known as Clayhill Farm. The Danes were surprised and forced to retreat on their ships to the south of the river. The only crossing place available now to Edmund was west of London at Brentford. Canute knew this too, so he defended the crossing heavily. Once again Edmund was able to gain a victory and drive the Danes off, but this time his victory was so expensive of men that he wasn't able to follow up his advantage, and he was forced to withdraw to find more men for his army. Canute must have been becoming a bit desperate. Once invincible the Danes were beginning to look vulnerable. So he ordered a renewed attack on London, his supplies were running out, and if London fell, Edmund's position would surely be greatly weakened. But yet again the assault failed, and by the time it was finished, Edmund was back. Knut raised the siege, 
took to his boat and concentrated on replenishing his supplies with a raid on East Anglia in the southeast. Edmund tracked the progress of the army and caught up with him at Otford, the site of another battle between Offa and the men of Kent in 776. The result was another victory for Edmund, and Canute withdrew to the Isle of Sheppey, east of London. Edmund then made what seems like a terrible mistake. Edric Striona apparently deserted Canute and joined Edmund's side. Well, I mean, I ask you, would you have trusted him? There are many unanswered questions about this that we just can't know at this distance. It might be that Edmund simply had no choice. He felt he couldn't win without Edric's men and support. Or it could be that he was just a wally. Why did Edric join Edmund at this point? Did he genuinely think the tide had turned? Or was it in fact part of a plan cooked up between himself and Canute? Either way, the decisive battle took place at Ashingdon in Essex. Canute occupied a low hill and Edmund drew up his army three deep and attacked. But at the crucial stage, Edric and his men of Herefordshire deserted the English side and fled. The army lost heart, and the result was an English massacre. Many of the best-known English leaders died there, including Ulfkell of East Anglia, who had fought so hard against Canute in the past. Edmund fled to Gloucester with every intention of raising a new army, but Edric, still apparently in his confidence, persuaded him to treat with Canute. From Canute's side, he was still probably more vulnerable than Edmund to a war of attrition and the loss of men, so he could see the advantage of coming to an arrangement for the time being. So the deal was that Edmund would take Wessex and Canute would take the rest of England, including London, which had to pay a tribute to Canute and open its gates. There's a cock and bull story here about a single combat between Canute and Edmund, but this has got to be hooey. This was clearly not a relationship that was going to last. There would have been many Thames, for example, who would have owned land on both sides of this divide and therefore have split loyalties. It's extremely unlikely that either Canute or Edmund were going to accept such a halfway house, but both probably needed time to regroup. We never found out, of course, because Edmund died on the 30th of November. Just how he died is a matter of some debate. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle simply records his death with no suggestion of foul play at all, and the balance of probability is in favour of a natural death, therefore, since it is the most contemporary source. But later chroniclers have a more lurid explanation, namely that Edric Strayona persuaded one of his men to hide in the pit below where Edmund was having a poo, and shot him through the backside. Either way, he was buried in Glastonbury alongside Edgar the Peaceable. He left two young sons, Edmund and Edward, but neither were old enough to inherit. The struggle was finally over, and Canute had won. What to make of Edmund Ironside? Clearly he was a great war leader, determined, persistent, able to inspire men to follow him. His trust of Edric makes him look a bit foolish, but we must remember that Edric himself has been painted as blacker than black by later chroniclers as a convenient cause and explanation of everything that goes wrong for the English. Edmund's story is in the end one of what might have been, but as it was, his struggles really had little consequence. The rest of 1016, and up to 1018, was a period of bloodletting and political settlement, while Canute set up the management of his new kingdom. Just like William the Conqueror 40 years later, Canute had potentially conflicting needs. On the one hand, he had an army and leaders to pay off and reward for their loyalty. On the other hand, he now had a kingdom to manage and reconcile. 
His first priority was to make sure that he got rid of pretenders or competitors to the throne, and that he had a group of leading men that he could trust. And so we get a bloodletting. Edwy, Edmund's brother and an atheling, was the first to go. He fled from England, but was found and murdered by Canute's agents. Canute would dearly have liked to kill Edmund's young sons also. He realised, though, that being too public about killing these two young boys would surely damage his reputation. So he sent Edward and Edmund to his ally Olaf Skottenung in Sweden, publicly for their protection, privately to be permanently removed. But Olaf bottled it and allowed them both to flee to Hungary. There Edmund soon died, but Edward, often called Edward the Exile, survived and even thrived. He married, had children, and even briefly makes another appearance as a potential successor. His next priority was to get rid of any influential lords that he couldn't entirely trust. Four leading magnates met their end quickly, and among them was Edric Striona, whose time finally ran out. The story goes that Edric owned up to having Edmund Downside killed, and Knut was horrified at the murder of such a noble opponent, and had Edric killed and his head put on a spike. But this sounds like flim-flam and propaganda to me, and the likelihood is that he was simply too untrustworthy. Knut originally divided England into four big earldoms, ignoring the older divisions within England such as the Chwysa and Lindsay. The Earl of Northumbria remained Eric of Hlathir, Thorkel the Tall was given East Anglia, Eric Striona, before he was killed, originally had Mercia, and Knut kept Wessex for himself. The thing fell to pieces to a degree with the fall of Edric, but the principle of a few very mighty magnates had been established, with damaging long-term consequences. Having so few and such powerful leading men encouraged political infighting, and began to lead to the development of earldoms that were more like personal fiefdoms rather than public office. All of this probably gave William the Conqueror a much easier task in 1066 than he might have done. Knut now had to establish his legitimacy and right to rule on more than simple conquest. His first step was to take Ethelred's wife, Emma, as his queen. As it happened, he was already married to somebody called Ethel Giffu of Northampton and had two children by her, Svein and Harold. There seems to have been no massive problem with him putting Ethel Giffu aside. She remained a public figure, so much so that she became a regent in Norway for a while. However, the deal with Emma is pretty clear. Emma is to be the queen, their children will take precedence and rule. The relationship was also part of building a closer relationship with Normandy, since Emma was the Duke Richard's daughter. Another source of potential legitimacy was the church. Knut's father, Svein, had been something of a paper Christian, whereas the English tradition is that Knut was a truly Christian king. It is difficult to know, but we do know that Knut recognised the importance of his public image, so over the next few years, he set out to win the respect of the English church. By 1018, Knut felt confident enough to pay off and disband his army. He took command for one last time to destroy a company of 30 ships of Vikings, demonstrating the advantage of having a Viking as your king. He then raised a further massive Dane Geld of 72,000, plus 10,500 from poor old London. Forty ships were retained as a standing navy, while the rest set off back to Denmark. Finally, Knut called a great meeting of secular and religious lords at Oxford, where Dane and English all agreed to live under Edgar's law. The meeting confirmed Canute as a legitimate successor to Edgar the Peaceable 
and the Anglo-Saxon line of kings. I've looked at this as the end of the story of the 11th century Viking invasions. England was now reconciled to Canute's rule. There can be little doubt that the English felt the sting of defeat and that Canute was seen as a conqueror, but there is equally clearly a feeling that they're well rid of an incompetent king and that the benefits of peace and a king clearly able to defend them far outweighed the shame of being ruled by an invader. Next week, we're going to talk about a man, Canute, who in his own country earned that elusive great title. We're going to hear a bit more about how, while he was undoubtedly a conqueror and not of the line of Cherdich, he became accepted into the tradition of English kings. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.